Welcome to part seven of You Asked For It. Today I'm dealing with a topic that's really challenging for many in our culture. What took place uh, a little over a year ago here, the act of terrorism that really just unleashed such a sense of brutality and hurt and pain in our culture was something that uh, was driven by a man who had a religious ideology. It was an ideology of hate. Uh, The fact is that man went into that bar downtown uh, Orlando with the intent to killing people. Today, I want to present to you the gospel. Today, we're talking about, you asked for it, what's the big deal about homosexuality? As a, a young boy, at the age of 11, I first encountered this, uh, this reality that some people live out. My uncle uh, was my, my father's younger brother. He, he lived in California. I, I was raised in Arizona. And at the age of 11, I went to visit some cousins in California. The time period was uh, August 1974. And it's a day that I'll never forget because it was the same time that Richard Nixon resigned from being the president of the United States. This day has stuck with me as well because it was at that age when I was talking with some of my cousins that they pulled out some pictures. It was a, a picture of my father's younger brother wearing a wedding dress. He lived in San Francisco and at the, that age, although at that time homosexual marriage was not legal, he embraced another man and they became partners for many years. I didn't know much about my uncle. He wasn't that close to our family. But for the first time in my life, I, I really, as even as a young boy, I had to try to figure out and understand what was taking place. I, I want to say this right up front today. Although this is a very serious topic, it's a, a topic of redemption and a topic of hope. You see, we look around this room today, and, and everyone has a story. Everyone has a story in this room And when I talk about the issue of homosexuality, we're talking about real people with real faces, with real stories, with real pain, with real struggles. In 2005, my wife and I moved to Oviedo, Florida, and a young lady that lived next door to us, a nice young lady, she was uh, very well respected in our community, very successful. Uh, She was uh, 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 in relationship with another woman, and over the next 12 years, they had three children together. Our, our neighborhoods, our backyards were open and our kids played together. And, and I remember many, many times, many, many times, I would talk to her and we'd have small talk. And I'd always prayed for an open door to share the gospel, to talk about the love of God. About seven years ago, I was in the front yard with my two sons, Austin and Paula, and, and we were talking about a family issue. I don't even remember what it was. And I said, well, let's just pray about it. And, and as I began to pray with my two boys, I, I, I kind of felt like there was somebody standing next to me. And, and so when I finished praying, opened my eyes, my neighbor was standing next to me. And she said, I saw you on TV. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, you were preaching on TV. She said, you did really good. I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> and little did I know, little did I know, I, God would use that way and that method for me to share the love of God and the gospel with her. When I talk about this topic today, I'm not looking to be crude. I'm not looking to be crass. I'm not looking to condemn, but I'm also not looking to condone. What I'm praying today takes place in the next few moments is that the conviction of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus would become real to our lives. I want you to turn, if you have, on your phones or however you read the Bible, I want you to look at one passage of Scripture with me this morning. One passage of Scripture is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Paul the apostle was writing to a church. The church of Corinth was a church that was confused about a lot of things because the generation that they lived in, the, the Roman culture was very pagan. They worshiped many gods. They had all kinds of sexual practices that they practiced as part of their religious experience. And they were coming out of that kind of life. And there was challenges. There was infighting taking place in the church. And Paul the apostle writes these words to the church beginning with verse number nine. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin who, or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse number 11. Such were, or some of you once were like that, but you were cleansed, you were made whole, you were made right by God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, once again, I come before you and I thank you, Lord, that you are the God that pursued me with reckless love. God, I was once far from you, once trapped in my own sin, once not inheriting the kingdom. And God, you came and you showed yourself to me. And I thank you for that today, Jesus. Lord, I pray in these next few moments that every word that I speak would not be my word, but it would become your word in the ears and the hearts of those who hear. God, I humbly come before you and thank you for your grace that's been demonstrated to me and for this time that we've already experienced your presence in such a, a powerful way at the communion table and in our expression of worship to you. God, I pray for your people today. Give them an ear to hear, a spiritual ear to hear, and eye to see the truth of your great love in your mighty name. Amen. So what's the challenge? What's a challenge? There's a challenge in our culture today. Over the last 40 years, our culture has had what they call a, a cultural shift. Uh, ideologies and concepts that most people held to be true in our culture have shifted. People are changing the way that they think about life. Bob Dylan in the 1960s wrote a song entitled, Times Are Changing. And things are changing in our culture. 1987, 1987, just 30 years ago, 11% of the population in America supported same-sex marriage. In 2007, 45% of Americans supported same-sex same marriage. In 2011, the same president who in 2008, along with Hillary Clinton and, and uh, um, Mitt Romney, both stood, all stood an American platform and said that heterosexual marriage was the right way for marriage. In 2011, our president stood and he said that he was in support of gay marriage. 2015, the Supreme Court has legalized and made same-sex marriage the law of the land. And in 2017, 64% of Americans believe that same-sex marriage is okay with God. There has never been a cultural shift. There's never been a perspective change like this change in all of American history. Not regarding race, not regarding war, not regarding economics, not regarding any other topic. Culture has changed the fastest on this topic more than anything else in all of our American experience. 
Not only has homosexual been embraced in our culture, but 70% of Americans have embraced divorce as part of a normal part of our life experience. Heterosexual relations outside of marriage are considered to be the norm. Gambling and having children outside of the confines of marriage. Things that were all once considered to be wrong by the culture at large and for sure the local church have now been embraced. It's a culture shift. It's a culture shift. I would propose to you today that a farther a nation drifts from the standards of God's word, the greater spiritual confusion, despair, and void, and the human condition becomes. And so we have this challenge. We have this challenge. And the church has responded to this challenge in one or a couple of ways. The LGBT community has defined the church in these ways, affirming or non-affirming. The affirming LGBT community in the name of love, defining thousands of years of scriptural interpretation, has said that it's okay for two women or two men to engage in matrimony. The Bible says, the Bible says in 2 Timothy, Paul talking to a generation that was trying to define truth for themselves. See, there's the cultural reality of truth, there's the scriptural or the reality of truth, and then there's our personal truth. And our culture today, our culture today has defined truth as what I believe to be true. Paul the Apostle said this, they will follow, they, the people, will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. And so there are affirming LGBT churches where where the the pastors, many times, maybe they themselves are in that community, but they will marry people as part of that community. They've affirmed it. They've embraced it. They've accepted it. They said, the things that the Bible taught, this is not really what it means. And so we've come to this new understanding based on the concept of love. And then there's, according to the LGBT community, there's non-affirming churches. These are churches, when they look, when they look and they look at these people, they say, these people, they don't love us, they hate us, they don't accept us the way we are. And many times, many times, churches that have not embraced, not have demonstrated the love of God to people who are different than them, do qualify for what Jesus said. They become hypocrites. Jesus talking to the religious people, the people who were clean on the outside, the people who who were judging other people and their sin. They were Pharisees. Jesus said, why are you worried about the speck in your brother's eye when you're walking around with a great big log in your own? Non-affirming. Don't accept it to be right. C.K. Chesterton said it like this. It is never a virtue to abstain from a sin that one has not temptation towards. My confession today. I confess today that I haven't always been kind. And the opportunity for an applause line speaking to people who agreed like me. I've said things that were mean-spirited, not loving, not kind. I've stood in a platform and even at weddings and used a line that I knew that would grab people's attention. Although what I said was true, it was not said with the love of God. It wasn't said in a way that embraced people and loved people right where they were. 
And today I want to ask you to forgive me. If you've ever been in a service and I've said something in that fashion or that way, please forgive me. Today my goal, my goal here today is not to condemn. It's also not to condone. My goal today is to allow the gospel, the hope of Christ, to convict our hearts and to change our lives. So I would propose today that there's another way. There's a redemptive way. Everyone, this is what I propose here at City Church today. I propose that everyone is welcome and can confess their hurts, their habits, and their hangups in a safe community of loving, caring, and supportive people with the goal of experiencing the redemptive, healing power of Jesus. Come on. This is how I see it. Paul, the apostle, writing to his son, Timothy of the faith, he said, here's a trustworthy statement, something faithful to hold, up, up, hold on to. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm chief. Anytime we approach a topic like this, anytime we approach this kind of conversation, we must come. It's kind of like a beggar who has a piece of bread, and he's sharing bread, the bread of life with another beggar, recognizing today that we are all fallen short of the grace of God. And today, I believe that there is a way. You see, people have real-life issues. People have real-life struggles. Uh, the church's response hasn't always been perfect, but there is a message of redemption and a message of hope for this generation. What are the causes? How does this happen? Uh, because I was talking with someone just in between one of the services, and they were talking about their brother and, and how that the, this particular struggle of homosexuality in their life drove them to a place of such despair that they wanted to commit suicide. What I've discovered, people that I've personally known uh, 20 some years ago, Laura and I, when we started our first church in Seattle, Washington, the man that we started with after having five children left his wife and embraced the, the, the LGBTQ lifestyle. Uh, what I realized that there are things that drive people, there are motives, there, there are hurts, there are things that happen in our life that cause us to act out in certain ways. You know, the fact is, is that very few people would ever say, you know what, I wish, I'm just so thankful that I'm this way today. No, most of the time it's been a great struggle for most people to end up in this kind of lifestyle. Many times it's because parental relationships with the mother or the father just been broken. My friend that we started the first church with in Seattle, I had no idea. I had no idea that he would end up going into that kind of life. But I gotta tell you, there had been a lot of pain in his life. His father had been a very famous preacher and been very, very harsh and judgmental, and he'd always tried to please his father. But because of a broken relationship with his father, it seemed to push him in a different direction. Some people have been sexually abused or emotionally abused, maybe even as a, a little child. My uncle that I told you about in the very beginning, my, one of my other uncles told me that when he was a, a little boy, that my uncle had been molested by a man in the neighborhood 
Our culture today, we, we hear this. We're hearing this every single day. There, there are Hollywood stars that are tagging me too, me too, me too in response to one of the media moguls and the abuse that they've inflicted on multiple women. Sexual and emotional abuse in our life can cause us out of anger and out of hurt and out of pain to try to fill the void and the hurt. Peer rejection. I would also say not only peer rejection, but peer pressure many times. When I was a child, when I was a young boy, it wasn't accepted. I didn't even know anybody. I know that there were kids in my school. I, I, I know that there were people probably that had a propensity towards that, but it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't communicated. I do remember, I remember seeing people that were rejected, called terrible names, and seeing them respond seeing the hurt and the pain that they carried because they were labeled with a certain identification. But also peer pressure today. It's open. It's out there. The majority of the population embraces and accepts it as a common way of life. And because of that, some people are feeling pressure to experience that life. Then there's the gender identity, identity and confusion issues. And we want to identify ourselves with a, a certain kind of life or a certain kind of way. It happens in every people group. We have labels. When I was in high school, it was the freak and the jocks and the cowboys and, and the frocks and whatever the different kinds of labels. And every generation has them. And we like to find labels because it, it helps, helps us put ourselves into a group of people that we can identify with. And when we look at the message of the gospel, when we look at the hope of the gospel today, we look at the hope of the gospel, we got to know today that it's not about our identity and a label, but our identity is found in Christ alone. The challenge of this generation is that the culture has believed two lies. The culture has believed that if you hold to a traditional biblical worldview, you're a hater, you're a homophobe. The culture is also embraced that if you st cannot stand, if you stand against a certain behavior, you cannot love those same people. The question, the question for the church is, if something is popular, acceptable, and legal, does it make us right before God? What does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible actually say? Well, First of all, you have to hear this today. The Bible is my source of truth. Not popular opinion, not pop culture, not a political pundit or a politician. The Bible is my source of truth. I live for it. I believe it. I've embraced it. I've experienced this transforming power in my own personal life. Paul the Apostle wrote this to his son Timothy in the faith. All scripture, everyone say all scripture, is God breathed. It's God breathed. The breath of God, the same breath of God that took place in the book of Genesis when God made Adam in his very own image. The Bible says that he breathed life. This scripture is the bread of life. It gives hope. It gives faith. It gives strength. It gives restoration. It gives peace to those who need peace. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness. And so we have the standard of our generation, and then we have the truth of God's word. And so we start with this fundamental belief that the Bible is our source and standard. 
The second thing that you must hear today is that same-sex attraction within itself is not sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's not the attraction that's sinful. It's not the attraction for me to alcohol or to pornography. It's not the attraction to any sin to lying, to stealing, to cheating. It's not the attraction of an individual to to a homosexual lifestyle that's sin. It's the acting out on it. It's taking that next step. And finally, sexual immorality, homosexuality, is not a greater or lesser sin than any other sin in the Bible. The Bible says all, everyone say all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the hard truth. Here's the hard truth of Scripture. Here's the hard reality of what God says. God says that a homosexual lifestyle is contrary to his original design. Jesus, Jesus, standing up to his generation, who the, the, the Pharisees, the religious people, were divorcing their wives at whim. They had reinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures. They, they had made them a law unto themselves, and, and they were divorcing their wife, maybe because she burnt, the, she burnt the brisket that Sunday, and so they wanted a new wife. They wanted to start over again, and so they were writing writs or, or bills of divorce. And Jesus, speaking to this issue, Said at the beginning, God made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. God created us. The complementary nature of a male and a female, the design, the human anatomy was specifically intended for God for several things. One, it was for procreation. Every person in this room is here as a result of a male and a female. And first and foremost, God created us so that we could have relationship with him, but that we could also, in his image, repopulate and create others who would have a relationship with him. The second reason that God created this human anatomy, this male and female relationship, is for intimacy. Intimacy. Spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy, and relational intimacy. This closeness, this oneness. It's why if you've had divorce in your family, you know how painful it is. Because the fact is when a couple comes together in marriage before God, they become glued. The Bible says they become one flesh. And so when divorce takes place, it's like the ripping apart of two pieces of paper that have been glued together. God said, don't let what's come together be torn apart. God's original design from the very beginning was for a man and a woman And the distortion of homosexuality is that a man or a man or a woman or a woman will be able to fill the purpose and the plan that God has originally designed and created us for. The second thing is that that homosexuality in the Bible, whether I like it or whether you like it, is always wrong. Six times from Old Testament to New Testament, homosexuality is described in the Bible The other thing you must hear today, it's never or very seldom ever described alone as a single sin issue. But it's always seen as wrong in the Bible. 
in Leviticus chapter 18 in a list of other practices in the law of God. In the Mosaic law, there were 613 laws that God had asked the children of Israel to keep. And the fact is they couldn't keep them. But one of these laws was the laws having to do with sexual relations. It says, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is detestable before God. And then finally, the consequences. The consequences are eternal. Jesus speaking to men first, talking about lust in their heart towards another woman that wasn't their wife. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart towards a woman that isn't your wife, and you, you, you do the things that men do, that person isn't your spouse. You're sinning against God, and you're sinning against yourself in that individual. You see, because you're not actually able to, to demonstrate the love, the true love that happens in a healthy relationship. And Jesus said, you got to deal with the lust in your life, guys. you got to deal with the porn issues of your life. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Then I want you to hear again Paul's words to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do you not know that today? And he goes through this list. He talks about idolaters and adulterers, sexually immoral, greeter, greedy people, people who cheat. You see, the kingdom of heaven isn't just out there. It isn't just in the sweet by and by when we get to heaven. No, the kingdom of heaven is the reality of God dwelling and living in his people. Jesus said, my kingdom is now. When Christ comes into our life, when Christ transforms our heart, when Christ changes us from death to light, at that moment, God's kingdom enters into our world and the possibility and the potential for us to become everything that God created us to be becomes real. The consequences are eternal. If we live a life outside of God's design and plan, it's eternal, eternal separation from his plan and purposes for us. And so we have a day today where we, are have, we have hyphenated Christianity. We have Reformed Christians, Armenian Christians, Baptist Christians, Lutheran Christians, Pentecostal Christians, homosexual Christians, I thought, you know, hyphenated. It's like, it's like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, okay, if you read the list that Paul had, and I've checked off some of those things on that list in the past, because the fact is, Paul says, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been made whole because of the life of Jesus Christ. You know, I thought about that list, and I thought about how we want to hyphenate in our life today. Imagine just going to church. Yeah, we're the uh, adultery Christians. <laughs> uh, we're the first church of lying Christians. We're the first, we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're the greedy Christians. Or the gluttonous Christians. Or the homosexual Christian. They're things that don't come together in God's kingdom. It's not who God called you to be. Your design. Your identity today is not found in your hyphenation. Your identity today is found in Christ alone. Someone said amen. Paul the apostle said amen. Paul the apostle said 
all who've been united with Christ in baptism and have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I've presented the challenge. Now what's the hope? Here's the hope of the gospel. Here's the hope of the gospel. It's the solution for all of my sins. It's the solution for my sexual sins. The fact is everyone in this room has been marred by sexual sin. Every one of us, we've all experienced the pain of it. Here's the hope of the gospel. There was a woman she lived in the days of Jesus. You can read the story for yourself in John chapter 8. This woman was committing adultery. In other words, she was, in a, she was having a relationship with a man who wasn't her husband. She was married to someone else, but she was sleeping with another man. And the Bible says that this woman was caught in the very act. I don't know what would drive a person to run into the arms of another man, but obviously there was, there was a void Obviously, there was a pain. Obviously, there was something not being fulfilled in a relationship with her husband. And the Bible says that the religious people, you can read the story for yourself, they caught her in the very act. And then they took this woman. As they caught her in the act, they condemned her to death. The Bible says they took her out into the street and they began to grab stones. And then they were going to kill this woman. But while this was taking place, Jesus shows up on the scene. These men in preparation of killing this woman now have a confrontation with the Savior. Now have a confrontation with a man by the name of Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus walked on planet earth, everywhere he went, he went around doing good and he healed all who were oppressed of the devil. For this purpose was Christ coming to the world that he might destroy the works of Satan from our life. This woman being condemned to death. Do you not know that our sins condemn us today? For the wages of all sin, all sin leads to death, not some sins. And see, here she is, caught in the act, condemned to death. But she has a confrontation. She has a confrontation. She has a confrontation from the man of Galilee. She has a confrontation with the man who could change her eternal destiny. She has a confrontation in a man who the Bible says that when he looked out on the people who were in, in his generation, he saw them as harassed and helpless, and his, his eyes and his heart were full of compassion. She has a confrontation with Jesus, the living Son of God, the risen Savior. She has a confrontation of this Messiah, the one who would fulfill, not abolish, but the one who would fulfill all 613 laws of the Old Testament. And that which was impossible for us to be in right standing with God in one moment because Christ came and gave his life on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day when Jesus declared victory over Satan, sin, and death. At that very moment, the reality of the gospel became true. And she has a confrontation with Jesus. She has a confrontation with Jesus. I can take you to the place. I can take you to the apartment. The bed's no longer there because my grandmother's dead and doesn't live in that apartment any longer. But I can take you to the place where I looked up into the heavens, looked up into the, the ceiling of my room, and I said, God, if you're really real, if you're really real, Show yourself to me.
in my brokenness, in my addictions, in my broken sexuality, in my, in my, uh, my addictions to drugs and alcohol, all the things that my life was ensnared in. In that moment, I had a confrontation with Jesus. In that moment, my life was changed. The Bible says in the story that Jesus began to talk to the men. He said, you that are without sin, throw the first stone. At that time, he was writing something in the ground. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing. But at that moment, he was writing something in the ground. And when he looked up, he looks at this woman. He says, where are your accusers? Where are the men who were condemned to death? Has no one condemned you? Well, no one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, the confrontation with Christ led her to a call, a call of transformation, a call of hope, a call of forgiveness, a call of restoration, Today, the gospel, the hope of the gospel is this. Although, although we were caught and trapped in our sin, we were condemned to die a sinner's death. Christ Jesus came into the world to save me, the chief of sinners, so that I could have life and have it more abundantly. I want you to meet a woman in our church that's experienced this transforming power of the hope that's found in Christ alone. I want you to check out this video. I've struggled with homosexuality for most of my life. I started drinking and using drugs when I was 12. At about 15, I started having sex. This included sex with other women. I didn't practice safe sex and I was very promiscuous which resulted in my first child being born when I was 15. These behaviors continued for about the next 15 years on and off, doing drugs, drinking, partying, back and forth from men to women. In 2015 was my last homosexual relationship. I was engaged to be married. One day I was just sitting on the front porch and kind of felt this overwhelming emptiness come over me. I didn't know what it was. I had a good job, I had a good relationship, I was in college, my relationship with my kids was growing, and yet I still felt like something was definitely missing in my life. So I kind of thought back to when the last time it was that I had felt full, when I had felt whole, and that was um, when I was a kid, when I was in church. That next Sunday, I came into City Church. That was in July of 2015. My partner and I came in and we were welcomed with open arms from everyone here at City Church. It was so loving and everybody just welcomed us for who we were when we came in, a mess. I remember hearing Pastor Eugene talk about the land of more than enough, the land of abundance, and I knew that I was right where God wanted me to be. It was very painful and peaceful all at the same time. I knew that the more I loved Jesus and the more I loved his peace, that the less I would love her. And God started teaching me and showing me what a godly relationship was. I remember a very friendly face week after week after week inviting me to celebrate recovery. And I went and I was welcomed with open arms once again. Very loving, 
private environment, they showed me God's love. Didn't just tell me, but they showed me God's love. I was able to learn more about His Word and learn the biblical aspect of sobriety and how to get there. And I just thank them for loving me right through the hardest part of my life. Growth track was coming around and I decided that I was gonna go. I went to all four classes and didn't find out until the end. Um, I sat down with Pastor Eugene and Laura and they did let me know that I was not able to become a member of City Church at that time or serve because of my ungodly relationship. But I still felt loved here. I still felt God's presence here. I felt that I was learning more. I was becoming who God wanted me to be. I was getting into that land of more than enough. I could see it in the future. I could see it in front of me, but I wasn't there yet. So I just kept coming back and kept coming back. I got baptized on October 16th here at City Church. I got baptized with my son, which was amazing. On November 6th, my partner did move out and God put me on the path where he wanted me to be and he also took care of her. Later in November, I became a member, an official member here at City Church, as well as was able to serve for the, my first time in Operation Blessing. So I remember being in Celebrate and seeing this guy. God was just doing big things in his life, amazing things in his life. And I just prayed for him and that God would continue to move in his life. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed that God would let me become a part of that. And he did. We got married on September 27th, 2016, and my life with him has been amazing. I couldn't imagine it without him. Somebody to do life with, to do life the right way. So in just five short months, God changed my life dramatically. He brought me from a life of addiction and homosexuality, promiscuity, a life of nothing but sin, to the land of more than enough, the life of abundance. So if you're out there and you're struggling with homosexuality, I really want to encourage you to get plugged into a church like City Church. Get plugged into a small group like Celebrate Recovery. And whatever you do, keep coming back. Don't stop coming. God is here for you. You're not alone in this. He will love you. He will hold your hand every step of your way. I'm not perfect, but my God is. I'm thankful for His grace and His mercy. I'm a work in progress, and He works on me every day. And I'm just so thankful that He never gave up on me. Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce to you Gus and Jennifer right here in the front row. Come on, can you give them a great big hand? That's the hope of the gospel. It doesn't condemn. It doesn't condemn. But it changes our lives. Jennifer, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story. Every person here has a story today three things that I think we can take away from this today. Number one, every person, every Christ follower in this room, we're Christ followers. We're not hyphenated Christians. We're Christians. Not a label, but a relationship. Commit ourselves to living sexually pure before God. Nothing brings more confusion, more pain, more hurt in an individual's life than living outside of God's design and plan, whether it's heterosexual or homosexuality. Number two, we must not compromise the gospel in the name of love. Paul the Apostle stood before the people. He said, 
must speak the truth in love. Love, love does win. Love does win. But we can't compromise the truth. See, anything else demolishes, destroys. Any other, any other idea about the gospel makes it powerless. The reason Jennifer was able to have life change is because the truth was held out, that God forgives, God restores, God redeems. God takes our brokenness and our messes and he turns them into messages of grace so that we can live a life that he's called us to live. And then ultimately as a church, maybe this is not your sin, this is not your challenge. <sighs> Be compassionate. The reason Jennifer was able to take her next step is because we embraced her, we loved her, we affirmed her right where she was at. We started right where she was at. That's exactly what Jesus did. Whether it was a woman caught in adultery, whether it was a woman at the well, or whether it was a man who lay completely broken, when not able to take care of himself, Jesus always started where they were at. Receive people, people that are different from you. If you have a person in your world that is not looking for change, they're, they're not a seeker, they've, they've already identified themselves, they're not looking for a change that you believe that Christ has, don't argue with them. People are never won through arguments. People are never won through arguments. They're always won through love. Seek to understand before you want to be understood. Our worship team is going to come at this time. It's a very strong word. And it's a very powerful word. It's a word of hope. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of who Jesus is in our life today. I want you to close your eyes and you're in this room and I'm not here to embarrass anyone, but God's speaking to you today. God's speaking grace to your life. I don't care whether you're struggling with some kind of homos homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. God loves you today. His grace is here for you. We're not going to raise your hands. I'm not going to here to embarrass, but I'm here to tell you today God offers a life of change and a life of hope for you. Just a couple of moments ago, we sang this song, Reckless Love. And I'm going to pray for you today. And right where you're seated this, this afternoon, God's grace wants to feel you. God's grace wants to heal you. And as I'm praying, I want you to receive it. And when I'm finished praying, I want us to stand as a congregation in a reckless abandonment. Let's worship our God, the God who's pursuing us with his reckless love. Father, for every person that's in this room, every person at the sound of my voice, you're the God who heals. You're the God who restores. You're the God who gives hope where there is no hope. I thank you that you're the God that brings deliverance. I thank you the God that sets the captive free. Thank you for Jennifer's story. But I thank you for the story of every person in this room that you're here to change their lives. We thank you for the gospel, the message of hope for our generation. God, I pray for deliverance and freedom. I pray for healing to take place in hearts in this room. I'm asking for you, Jesus, to do what only you can do in your mighty and your awesome name. Amen.